Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Audible at the back. Thank you so much. Uh, well, good afternoon. I'm Tony Long, uh, professor of classics, uh, a member of the Forster Lecture Committee, and very pleased to welcome you and especially our speaker of today, Professor Sarah Brody, who is going to give us this first uh, Forster Lecture of the Millennium. Uh, we're very fortunate in having her as our lecturer this year. And before I introduce her, a few words about this remarkable lecture series and its origins. Uh, it's, I think, slightly disappointing that in the listing of former Forster lectures which you've received, you don't actually see their topics. Um, you've only got to see that extraordinary uh, list of names uh, to realize how very fortunate we've been in the history of this lecture series. And I hope next year we can perhaps design a program which will show you that. The founder and benefactress of this series of lectures was an Edith Zweibruck, whose life spanned the last third of the 19th century and the first third of the 20th. She worked as a public school teacher in San Francisco uh, and is described as a person, somewhat in the language of the time, for whom the teaching profession was an opportunity to develop a true knowledge and love of the spiritual values of life in the young minds entrusted to her care. She had an equally high-minded sister, Agnes, who was married to a Constantine Forster, a lawyer, who died very young in 1898. Forster was a partner of another lawyer, Alexander Morrison, after whom our Morrison Memorial Library is named. Edith's brother-in-law impressed her not only as a person who embodied her own ethical ideals, but also because of his range of interests in spiritual subjects in the widest sense, including art, literature, and philosophy, as well as religion. At the end of her life, she decided to dedicate a series of lectures on the immortality of the soul and kindred subjects. It would be quite interesting, I think, for us sometimes to hear a lecture on what precisely the kindred subjects of the immortality of the soul would be. One might think of that as something of an absolute. In any case, these lectures dedicated to the memory of her sister and brother-in-law, Agnes and Constantine Forster. And over the years, the university has very much tried to interpret Edith Sveibrook's wishes with that broad focus that she had in mind. Immortality as such has figured prominently in many of the lectures, immortality ranging over Christianity, Greek thought, Hinduism, Buddhism, ancient Egypt, North American Indian culture, Islam, and Taoism. But recent Forster lectures have also treated art and opera, evolution theory, neurobiology, issues concerned with mind, brain, and consciousness, and even computer science. The university has been very fortunate then in attracting the kind of lecturers whose names you see. I won't single out any, particularly that would be invidious, 
but suffice it to say that if you put them all together, you'd have about as brilliant an aggregate of talent as the most demanding selection committee could dream of. Well, our committee was extremely pleased when Professor Brodie accepted our invitation to deliver a Forster lecture. She studied classics and philosophy at Oxford during the 1960s. This was, of course, a time when, thanks especially to Gilbert Ryle, Will Owen, and John Ackrell, the greatest texts of Plato and Aristotle were acquiring a new kind of philosophical centrality as a result of being interpreted with the analytical rigor characteristic of contemporary philosophy at Oxford then and in the main university departments of philosophy in this country. After distinguishing herself at Oxford, Professor Brodie took up a teaching position in the philosophy department at the University of Edinburgh. I recall my first meeting with her shortly after that when I heard her give what I still remember nearly 30 years later as one of the best lectures I've ever heard on the good of others in Plato's Republic. What was so memorable about that lecture was the fresh questions it opened up and Sarah's refusal to settle for any easy answers to get Plato off the hook, so to speak. Uh, shortly after that, she published two now classic books uh, on Aristotelian physics and causality. Around this time, with her reputation established as one of the most powerful minds in ancient philosophy, Sarah began to be courted by departments of philosophy in the United States. In 1984, uh, I'm sorry, she left Edinburgh for the University of Texas at Austin, moved to Yale, and Rutgers followed, and uh, Berkeley hoped there would be a move uh, to Berkeley. Uh, but um, an East Coast University won over us. In 93, she took up her present position as Professor of Philosophy at Princeton. Professor Brodie has published what, for me and many others, is the most searching and compelling of all modern studies of Aristotle's ethics, a very large book, Ethics with Aristotle, which will be well known, I'm sure, to many of you. But while she's especially concentrated on Aristotle, her range of interests extends over the whole field of ancient philosophy and beyond that into philosophy as such. Her numerous distinctions include a Guggenheim Fellowship, Fellowship at the of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and as this audience can attest, she's in great demand as a speaker at Colloquia. Well, if Miss Zybrook, our lecture series founder, had been present yesterday, she would have greatly enjoyed hearing Sarah talk to me and a colleague about a range of theological questions. As to Sarah's subject today, nothing could be more appropriate to this series than her topic, Body and Soul, in Plato and Aristotle, and Descartes. Sorry, um, too much talk about Aristotle. Uh, well, that pair of giants, that is Plato and Descartes, separated by 2,000 years, are probably the first names that come to mind when we turn our minds to dualism, the realm of the spirit, as distinct from the realm of physical extension. Plato's theory of immortality, surely the boldest on record, 
is a major interest of Professor Brodie at present, and I'm delighted to present her to you as our Forster Lecturer this year, Professor Brodie. Thank you, Tony, for your extremely kind welcome. Um, and may I thank uh, the entire Forster Committee for their invitation. It's a privilege uh, to have received it, and it's a pleasure to be carrying it out, my, my pleasure to be carrying it out. <coughs> when philosophy teachers present the isms pertinent to mind-body relations and are still at the broad brush stage, Quite often, one finds them pairing Plato and Descartes as the two most eminent dualists of the Western philosophical tradition. No doubt it's mainly the contrast with various non-dualist isms that places Platonic dualism and Cartesian dualism together in one slot, and in many contexts, the differences may not matter. But if one simply compares the theories with each other, and not with any third system, the differences are fascinating and seem important. Let me begin by noting obvious similarities behind the initial pairing. Both philosophers argue that we consist of something incorporeal, whether one calls it mind or soul, which for the time being is somehow united with a body that forms part of the physical world. Both philosophers identify the self, the I, with the incorporeal member of this alliance. Both hold that my mind or soul will survive the demise of the body, the body by which I am now present to this audience, which in turn is present to me through its members' bodies. Both philosophers are often understood as holding that the mind or soul can exist altogether independently of body, though Plato in fact may have changed his view on this point. Both are concerned with the immortality of the soul, the main subject of this lecture series. In the dialogue Phaedo, which dramatizes the last hours of Socrates, Plato makes his most elaborate attempt to prove immortality and pre-existence and to draw a certain conclusion about the best way for human beings to live. Descartes prefers to leave to other people the problem of how we should lead our lives the others in question being, of course, the Christian, more, more precisely, the Catholic establishment. But Descartes believes that in his meditations, he's found purely philosophical grounds for the church's doctrine of immortality, and he is therefore glad to present that work to the doctors of theology at the Sorbonne in hope of gaining their favor and protection. Today I propose to focus not so much on the issue of immortality in the two philosophers as on that of the separability of mind or soul from body. But first, a word about terms. Several times already I've said mind or soul as if the words meant the same, which of course they don't. Plato consistently speaks of the soul, but not so Descartes. When addressing the fathers at the Sorbonne, Descartes claims that he will prove the immortality of the soul. He is using the church's label for the doctrine, but it's doubtful that what he thought he could prove is what the church means or meant in those days by the phrase. Roughly, I suppose, 
the church's meaning spotlights the human individual minus, minus a body. It's this human individual minus a body that can sin and be forgiven, is summoned to the last judgment, has prayers said for its salvation. What Descartes, on the other hand, believed that he could show is the immortality of the mind or intellect. And although the mind, as he was forever stressing, is prone to error and should be expected to conduct itself according to an intellectual code of conduct, its errors are not sins or offences against morality. In more philosophical contexts than his letter to the um, doctors of the Sorbonne, Descartes explicitly distinguishes mind from soul, and he reserves the word soul for that which animates the body. In this sense of soul, he either denies that any such principle exists, or he reduces it to a physical configuration. The biological difference between a living body and a corpse, for him, is the purely physical difference between a machine in working order and one that's broken or worn out. So what Descartes is left with, in addition to his machine body, that's to say, if his or any other body or physical object even exists, if you remember at the beginning of the meditations, he calls that into doubt. What he's left with, in addition to his maybe existent machine body, is a mind whose business is to think and imagine, but not to animate any corporeal system. And since it's himself that he finds thinking, and since he's unable, no matter how hard he tries, to doubt his own existence as this currently thinking thing, Descartes identifies himself with this mind. At first, of course, he's not in a position to assert that he, or the mind that is he, can exist without the body, because prima facie, at least, it's possible that the mind's existence or its essential activity of thinking depends on body in some way. For even though the mind does not require body in the way in which an animating principle presumably does require a body if it's to do its business of animating something, the mind nonetheless may depend on the body in some other way, a way in which, so to speak, it's the body that gives life to the mind, much as an arrangement of particles gives rise to a magnetic field. Later on, however, in the meditations, Descartes maintains that according to his clear and distinct ideas of mind and body, neither of these natures, the mental or the corporeal, uh, contains or refers to the other. And meanwhile, he takes himself to have established that everything that he clearly and distinctly perceives is true. Hence, he can conclude that mind, and perhaps soul in the theological sense, is separable from body, and that's the basis for proving the mind or the soul immortal. Or, more precisely, Descartes can conclude that mind and body are separable from each other. Once he's free of his initial wholesale doubt concerning the real existence of body, for obviously, if the physical world is only his finite mind's dream object, then neither it, the physical world, nor any part of it can exist independently of the dreaming. And on the same hypothesis, it may not be easy to show that the finite mind that dreams such a dream, 
a dream in which it is embodied and its body is part of a physical world. Not so easy to show that the finite mind that dreams such a dream can be free of dreaming this or other dreams like it. If, on the other hand, we take the opposite hypothesis, that the physical world exists independently, then it, and in particular the part of it that is Descartes' body, can reasonably be held responsible for the appearances of the physical that are present to Descartes' mind. In that case, it's reasonable to assume these appearances will cease when body and mind actually separate. The mind will then be phenomenally unembodied, as well as really so. But as long as it's uncertain whether the physical world is real, independently of the finite mind, one can suppose that either this mind generates the physical appearances from itself, or that they are caused directly in it by God. But since the finite mind cannot be separated from God, according to Descartes, any more than it can be separated from itself, on either of these hypotheses, the cause of the appearances is necessarily always with the mind, so why should the mind ever be without those appearances? It's true that in the sixth and last meditation, Descartes says he can clearly and distinctly understand himself to be a complete being, even, without, even were he not to have his faculty of sensory and imaginational appearances. From this he concludes that he or his mind can exist without that faculty and its objects. It follows from this that those objects, the empirical appearances, arise neither from his own intellectual nature nor directly from God, who's always present to or is even in his mind. Thus, Descartes is only one step away from concluding that the immediate source of those appearances must be something altogether different from mind, whether his own finite mind or the infinite mind of God. In other words, the, the immediate source of the appearances must be a corporeal substance, which is a real physical thing that exists independently of Descartes' thought. But let us stop Descartes before he takes that last step and ask him a question. If he or his mind is really a complete being, minus the faculty of sensory and imaginational appearances, then why, by his own admission over and over in the meditations, is he so beset by these appearances? No doubt they fade away when he absorbs himself in pure mathematics or in thoughts about God and about pure finite mind, if there is such a thing as pure finite mind. But in Descartes' own experience, those empirical appearances always return. So perhaps it's the nature of his mind to conjure them up for itself again and again, or become receptive again and again to these effects caused in him directly by God. If on careful reflection, I now resort to my own clear and distinct ideas, one can consider this possible, then Descartes is wrong in claiming that the human mind can, can, can attain a clear, distinct, and complete idea of itself as existing free of empirical appearances to itself. That these sometimes recede when the mind is abstractly engaged does not prove that they are not among the objects natural to it or naturally served up to it immediately by God. For where is it written 
that all the mind's natural objects are present to it at once. Certainly, Cartesian doubt, the doubt that begins uh, the meditations, can save Descartes from regarding those appearances as anything more than just appearances, but he knows from experience that doubt cannot put an end to those phenomena as such. He may always be saddled with them then, even if only as appearances that are recognized as no more than appearances. In this sense, a sort of phenomenalist sense, the human body and its environment may be as immortal as the human mind. Thus, Descartes' ideas of himself or his mind uh, are not, I think, able to show that the human mind is in every sense separable from body. To show this, he must fall back on the independent attractiveness of the thought that really, i.e. independently existing body, is what causes those empirical appearances. This is, of course, an independently attractive thought to the extent that it is unattractive to suppose that God, whom Descartes has proved to exist and to be Descartes' creator, to suppose that God deceives or meanly frustrates a finite mind like that of Descartes. For insofar as Descartes cannot help taking the, empir the empirical appearances to be of independently existing bodies, if Descartes were completely mistaken, then God would be a deceiver. And even if Descartes can break out of the deception by means of his systematic doubt, God would be cruel in making the escape from deception depend on a method so hard for the human mind. So if one is a Cartesian, the position that mind is separable from body, not only really, but also phenomenally, is secured by means of two conclusions. One, that if there is any such thing as a really existing body, mind is not existentially dependent on it. And two, body really exists to be the separable cause of mind's corporeal experiences. I now want to say something about the universality of Cartesian separability and something about what unites those separables while they're together. These are points on which Descartes and Plato differ fundamentally. Descartes' final argument in the sixth meditation rests on clear and distinct ideas, or rather on ideas that he takes to be clear and distinct. But such ideas stand for universals. Hence, the conclusion is universal. The conclusion is that every mind is separable from natural body in general, not merely that this particular mind is separable from this particular natural body. This is in line with the church's teaching, according to which every human soul comes to the last judgment either stripped of body altogether, or with a sort of supernatural body through which it can communicate and suffer, but which is not set in a natural physical environment and is not subject to the laws of physical nature. The generality of Cartesian separability rests not only on the notions supposedly conveyed by clear and distinct ideas of mind and body as such, but also on the general premise that mind as such is subject to corporeal appearances because and only because an associated real body causes them. It follows from this premise that for any mind M, once the causal nexus between M 
and real body is broken, M is automatically separated not only from real body, but also from all corporeal appearances. In sum, for Descartes, the possibility that the human mind is linked to corporeal things and the possibility of its not being thus linked flow from the nature common to all human minds. And if a mind's actual linkage or non-linkage is or is based on its standing or not standing in causal nexus with something metaphysically ex external to itself, the mind's linkage or not to corporeal things is therefore not determined by any internal mental disposition of its own, still less by any internal respect in which one particular human mind may differ from another. For example, in respect of strong involvement in a given type of pursuit. Consider Descartes himself in his unusual, if not unique, enterprise of seeking certainty through doubt. This extraordinary practice of his can surely be described as a letting go of the corporeal perspective. And it leads him, or so he thinks, to the proof that mind and body are separable. But this proof applies even to minds sunk in ordinary habits of thinking, minds for which Cartesian doubt is meaningless and impossible. And Descartes' proof of the separability of mind and body um, is not performative, it's not in his practice of doubt. It's discovered partly by means of the doubt. What he proves when he proves separation possible is a truth that would hold even if no mind ever engaged in Cartesian or similar detachment. It surely suits the doctors of orthodox theology that Descartes presents them with the discovery of a truth that's like the truths of logic and mathematics and physics in that it holds no matter what any of us may think or feel about anything. This is by contrast with any facts or possibilities that Descartes might bring about through a mental activity willed by him. We're now ready for the other question, uh, the question what unites the Cartesian separables when they are together? It's not the finite mind itself that connects itself with the body, which it then feels to be its own. This could only be done by an act of will on the part of the finite mind. But although Descartes regards his will, as he says in the fourth meditation, as not restricted in any way, its unrestricted domain turns out to consist entirely of propositions to which he may choose not to assent when they fail to be clear and distinct. This unrestricted will of his is not a will to bring anything about except its own assertion and denial of already constituted truths and falsehoods. For this unrestricted will belongs to Descartes insofar as he's pure intellect. On its own, therefore, it cannot take as its objects things that are sensed or imagined. For according to Descartes, such things can be present to the mind only once and because it's already united with the body. Consequently, the explanation for the union between the mind and the body cannot be that the finite mind wants or wills to be connected with a particular body or with some particular body or other. For without sense experience, we could not have an idea, either definite or indefinite, of a particular body. And presumably, 
any explanation in terms of the mind's wanting to be connected with body would attend to what it feels like to have a body. The mind would be assumed to have a sense of what that feels like and to be drawn towards a corresponding existence as if it would be at home in a body. But for Descartes, such feelings and the imagination of them can only arise when the mind is already embodied, so they cannot explain embodiment. Nor can we explain it by turning to body by itself. Obviously, body by itself is powerless to connect itself with the mind. Only God, a third being of infinite power, can cause by his will a union between substances of such mutually inalien uh, natures as mind and body. Of course, every arrangement of finite things depends on the will of God. But other arrangements, say of body with body, fall within a natural system and can be explained by familiar secondary causes according to the system's laws. Mind and body, however, fall within no such single system according to Descartes. Their union, therefore, speaks directly of a supernatural cause. On present showing, this cause is as different from finite mind as it is from finite body, since the latter are both devoid of the third thing's power to unite them. In this respect, that is, in respect of power to unite itself with the other, the finite mind is as passive and inert as matter is traditionally supposed to be. I now turn to Plato. Um, and looking at Plato, I shall mainly drawn, draw on the dialogue Fido, where the difference from Descartes is extreme. Plato is sometimes taken to task in the Fido for confusing soul as mind, that is, soul as that which thinks, with soul as that which animates the body. But in Plato, this is not a confusion in the sense of a blunder committed en route to something else. For the identification of thinking soul with animating soul is precisely Plato's theory. Now, one might discern a close analogy between thinking and animating if one understands thinking as the ex exercise of intelligence and assumes, as is natural for many people, that the practical sphere is the arena for the exercise of intelligence. For the person of practical intelligence is switched on to the practical demands of his situation in a way not unlike the way in which a perceptually sensitive <coughs> organism is switched on to signals in the environment and its own body, and again not unlike the way in which the elements of a physiological system are switched on and off by chemical signals in the interest of purely biological animation. Again, someone who's responsive to things that interest, someone who is irresponsive to things that interest most people may be said not to be properly alive and even not to be properly animating his body. In saying this, we need not mean that he functions below par physiologically. We may instead be regarding his body as a social presence or a potential social presence an in instrument for action and communication which comes to life on those levels when activated on those levels. Being alive on this level presupposes being biologically alive, and for normal human beings, being biologically alive automatically results in life on the level of practice 
except for when they're sleeping. These two modes of being, uh, the biological and the practical, these two modes of being alive, are linked in such a way that rather than deeming them analogous, one might, more primitively perhaps, fail to distinguish them and thus conflate what thinks with what animates the body. However, Plato's view is quite different because for him, the paradigm exercise of intelligence is theoretical, or at any rate, not immediately practical. It deals in universals and abstractions. It's conducted at leisure, and it has no palpable effect except on the thoughts of oneself and a few interlocutors. Plato believes that the soul thinks best when dissociated from the body. He has two reasons. One is the observation that we can't engage in the kind of thinking that for him is thinking par excellence when we're physically active and attending to, going, attending to goings on in our bodies and in our physical environment. The other reason is his theory that the soul has latent within it a supremely pure and beautiful kind of knowledge which it could only have come by, uh, it could only have gained before birth in a body. Since the thinking soul is at its best when in full contact with the objects of this knowledge, Plato concludes that the best thing that can happen to this soul is to be separated from body upon death. Now, so far, one might think that Plato's thinking soul cannot possibly be what animates the body, for it seems absurd to suggest that something both animates body and is a pure intellect that functions best away from the body. But in fact, the, the belief that the soul is an intellect that functions best away from body is precisely one of two assumptions that lie at the base of Plato's equation of intellect with animator. The second assumption is that this self-same intellect is also intimately connected with the body. The argument for that is mediated by the concept of the self. On the one hand, it's natural for Socrates and his interlocutors in the Phaedo to identify themselves with their intellect. After all, if you are Socrates and I'm Simias, one of the characters in the Phaedo, then what are you and I engaged in if not paradigmatic intellection while minimally using our bodies to exchange our thoughts? If we could think at our best without ever exchanging thoughts, communicating and listening to other people's thoughts, which at present is not the case, then we as intellect would not need bodies at all. That's the, as it were, argument for identifying um, the soul with intellect. On the other hand, though, each one of us knows himself to be in or intimately connected with a body. And Socrates' friends know this about Socrates, or why would they dread losing Socrates once his physical death has been decreed? So the self that Socrates' intellect is the self bound up with his body. And the fact that in this life, uh, our present existence, the soul functions best as intellect when least involved in bodily activity and sensation. Together with the doctrine that the soul's intellectual activity was at its absolute best when the soul was attached to no body, now strongly points to the conclusion that intellectual activity waxes as bodily involvement wanes and vice versa. 
And since it's natural to think of bare biological animation as the limiting case of a soul's bodily involvement, as the basic form of involvement that's, that is presupposed by more complicated forms that express themselves in actions and emotions, it's not difficult to draw the further conclusion that the soul that can function as pure intellect is the same as the soul that keeps the body alive. But now, if one and the same entity, the soul, can function both as unembodied intellect and as animator of a body, what determines it to one of these functions rather than the other? And since they are, are alternatives and the soul is capable of both, is neither function essential to it any more than a piece of wax is essentially uh, spherical or essentially the shape of a cube? But if neither function is essential to the soul, we've learned nothing about the soul's nature. If, on the other hand, both are essential, what unites those functions? According to the theory stated and implied in Plato's Phaedo, the soul becomes involved with the body because it desires to live in a way in which it only can if it has a body of suitable kind. To begin with, perhaps, maybe at the beginning of time or the beginning of the universe, the soul is not oriented to any very specific set of physical activities or pleasures, since it has no experience of any. So to begin with, Perhaps all that it takes to involve a soul with body is the soul's failure to understand or fully believe that its existence can be complete as a pure intellect. Not realizing this, uh, it feels incomplete, and this breeds the desire for some activity that is not intellectual. And lo and behold, the soul finds itself with a body, and presumably a physical environment, of a sort that would enable it to live in the way which it thought would bring it completeness, but which in fact, of course, in Plato's view, does nothing of the kind. Now it is in the body of a human being, or perhaps a human male, this is the best kind of body to have. Um, and if the soul continues to misunderstand its own original nature, which is easier now for it to do, since it's come to feel at home in a physical existence and to become habituated to various kinds of embodied pleasures, then it seeks to be in a body, and always a body that would best express the way it wants to live. So, on the physical death of a human being, a soul in this state is reincarnated, maybe as another human being, but also, perhaps, so Plato held to the great embarrassment of some of his admirers, also perhaps as a lower animal, say a pig or a wolf, whose wallowing or ravening lifestyle fleshes out the soul's most pre precious previous desires. Alternatively, the embodied soul may incline towards disembodiment and achieve it or come closer to achieving it by practicing its intellectuality and rejecting physical and worldly enthusiasms. This is why in the Phaedo, about to die Socrates tries to comfort his friends by telling them that if death is the separation of soul from body, the philosopher should be glad to die, since the philosopher has lived his present life gladly practicing for death by losing himself to intellectual activity. So the question of separability of soul from body is more complicated for Plato than it is for Descartes. In the first place for Plato, every embodied soul is separable from its current body, 
since the soul is immortal, whereas any given body will wear out. Secondly, every soul is in principle separable from body altogether, since every embodied soul is in principle, or at least by virtue of its original nature, able to refine itself even to the point where it wants nothing that a body can provide. However, saying this is a bit like saying human beings by nature can live without heroin or cocaine. Heroin and cocaine addicts are human beings by nature, therefore they can live without heroin or cocaine. Even if we grant that they have the capacity, they lack the power to exercise that capacity as of now, just as human beings, by con contrast with gorillas, have the capacity to speak several different languages, but someone who has never learned a foreign language lacks the ability to exercise this human capacity. In this sense, some embodied souls cannot live separate from a body suited to their desires, because they cannot not have those desires, while others, a minority perhaps, can. Now, according to this picture, the body is simply the instrument of the soul, a view that Aristotle, too, would endorse at one stage of his career. That is, the soul doesn't depend on the body except to do through it something that it wants. Thus, it fashions and animates its body for the sake of physical action, sensation, and experience. That the soul can do this if it chooses goes along with the thought, which we find again and again in Plato, that the soul is divine or godlike. This means that in itself it has a kind of limited omnipotence. If it wills or really desires a certain kind of life for itself, its will is done, even if it wills what is bad for itself. It automatically comes to be equipped with what is necessary. Once it's in a body, of course, what it can bring about through that body is limited by the nature of that body and the environment. So to answer our earlier question about the essence of soul, the soul for Plato is essentially a valuing power, a power to create and conserve for itself the life it truly desires and thinks good, along with that lifestyle's accoutrements or freedom from accoutrements. Its purely intellectual function and its animating function represent different bents or inclinations. If we consider soul in general and in the abstract, it's presumably contingent whether soul is embodied and embodied this way or that, or whether it is pure intellect. What is essential and fundamental is the soul's determinability, in fact, self-determinability, in contrary ways. If, however, we consider an individual soul, not soul in the abstract, its determinate condition, its being embodied or not, and if embodied, then how, is all but fundamental for this individual. For this condition, on the one hand, reflects the individual's currently dearest values, and on the other hand, it affects almost everything the individual does and experiences in its current life. We may wonder how, in this story, the soul is supposed to take on a body. Plato says little about this. At one point, he seems to suggest that the soul weaves a body for itself. Certainly, he doesn't want to imply that the soul has hands and moves a shuttle to and fro. 
The idea presumably is that the soul informs certain materials which in its presence grow and organize themselves into the requisite body. A previously embodied soul may start with some matter from its previous body. Plato shows no sign of holding that the soul creates its body ex nihilo. A clue to a possible way to theorize in this, in this area uh, is provided by Plato's later dialogue, Sophist, where he says that what characterizes the real is the power to affect and to be affected. If, as I've been assuming, the Fido account of embodiment and disembodiment depends on the soul's desire, then at any rate, when the desire is a choice that could go either way, which perhaps it sometimes is, although surely it's often no more free than the addict's desire, we can say that the soul may choose whether or not to affect and be affected by a physical environment, and consequently acquires or loses what it needs in order to be affected and uh, affect and be affected in this way, what it needs to be thus affected and so forth is of course a body, quote, of its own. The point is that on the sophists, the dialogue called sophists criterion of reality, the soul's choice decides whether the physical world is real or not. Moreover, if we consider souls who cannot choose either because they are too enlightened or because they are addicted to life in the body, it's true even of them that they affect and are affected by the physical only to the extent that they desire to be involved with it. Hence, again, it's only because of the soul's inclination that the physical is real. There are, of course, difficulties that, would arise, from the, that arise from the fact that there are many different souls differently disposed. To avoid these difficulties, we should take the sophist's criterion of reality as saying, anyway, in this context, not that X is real absolutely, but that X is real to Y, if and only if it affects or is affected by Y. We don't want a situation in which the world is real because it's real to me, um, uh, but it's also sim simultaneously unreal because some other soul is taking no notice of it. If we say X is real to Y, if and only if it's affected um, by Y or affects Y, we may interpret this formula in at least two ways. We can take it as postulating many distinct physical worlds, each real in relation to a given soul. Or we can read it as saying of a single physical domain, X, that a soul, Y, belongs in the same world as X, only if and only if Y affects or is affected by X. The latter formulation has the advantage of underwriting the common sense view, which Plato never doubted or thought it necessary to justify, that many souls share a single physical world. The former formulation allows for an idealist interpretation according to which the physical world, including the soul's body, is a body-bent soul's fabrication of ideas. It might seem easier, to us easier, to believe that the soul dreams its body as well as the environment than that it makes a real physical body for itself. But with ingenuity, and with ingenuity, the idealist view can be made to accommodate physical world sharing by a plurality of souls. 
However, Plato does not distinguish between these possible ways of going on from the starting point he laid down. It's sometimes suggested that one needs to have been bitten by the bug of external world skepticism before one can seriously consider the idealist alternative, and that bug, external world skepticism, never got to Plato. The latter part of this suggestion is certainly true, but even if the former part is true too, I think a different explanation should be considered first. It is that from the point of view of platonic ethics, a point of view that pervades almost all the dialogues, it makes no difference whether the soul chooses to dream and then becomes addicted to dreaming a dream of embodiment, or whether it chooses and then becomes addicted to life mediated by a real independently existing body, body in a real physical environment. Whereas for Descartes, this makes all the difference. One way, God is a deceiver, the other way, not. For Plato, either way, the soul in question gets what it wants and is just as misguided in wanting it if the body turns out to be independently real as it would be if this body were its fantasy. I've been comparing Plato's argument in the Phaedo with Descartes' argument in the Meditations that soul is separable from body. Let me end by comparing some of the wider purposes of those arguments. Plato offers the argument of the Phaedo as, amongst other things, an instance and example of the kind of intellectual exercise that loosens the human soul's attachment to its body. Since the attachment reflects the soul's misunderstanding of the true nature of happiness, the Phaedo argument, for those who enter into it, is an exercise in soul-saving. By contrast, what Descartes discovers when he discovers his reasons for declaring the mind separable from the body is entirely different from the intellectualization he himself undergoes in order to reach the proof. And he can't overtly, even if he's inclined so inwardly, claim this intellectualization as a sort of soul-saving without running foul of the religion of his time. For although that religion differed within itself on how much faith counts for salvation and how much works, these were the only options considered, and Descartes' activity does not come under either. Instead, his avowed purpose in following the path of the meditations from doubt at the beginning to himself and the God who is not a deceiver is, as he says, to establish something firm and lasting in the sciences. Uh, he means by the sciences, mathematics and mathematical physics. Now, this is an extremely puzzling remark if it means that these sciences fail as sciences if they cannot be rendered indubitable by an argument that first doubts and then reinstates the clear and distinct ideas on which such inquiries depend. For the mathematician's performance as such is not less clear or less accurate if he lacks a proof to the effect that although the most rigorous mathematics conceivable to man can be doubted, nonetheless, in the end, we are theologically justified in accepting it. Surely, however, Descartes hopes not to make the mathematician a more successful mathematician, but rather to show the rest of us including the doctors at the Sorbonne, 
that mathematical science in, it, in its own sphere carries the same authority as divine revelation in its, since both come from the same source. Rightly understood, the practice of such abstract studies, though not a religious exercise, is not secular either. Plato would surely have agreed that it's not secular, but he could not have imagined the context that made it so important for someone in Descartes' position to distinguish priest and scientist, in effect postulating at least two kinds of higher calling, one religious, the other most definitely not. Professor Brody is very happy for us. Thank you so much. Well, we, I'm, I'm okay. She's very happy to have some discussion. I don't know whether, um, I'm sure a lot of you would like to, to do that. It might still help us just to take a moment or two uh, to, to, to reflect on this, uh, this um, very uh, searching paper. So I would suggest we just have a, mo a minute or two sure. and uh, catch our, our thoughts and everybody who wants to stay Please stay, and then we will continue. Thank you very much. I'm so glad I had the opportunity to. I mean, I've been sort of mulling this stuff for a while, yeah, but I mean, there was, there was no real pressure on me to do anything no, about it. The, I think the animating, I mean, the, the, the thing about Plato's soul being both animator and thinker, and, that, yes. and, then, and then not being any kind of problem about that, yes. that was particularly interesting to me. Yes, yes. Um, well, good. good. I'll see what. Uh, I mean, I think I'm a, did you like any water? No, I'm fine. I think there is some water. There is water, but no, I'm, I don't need water. Would you less like to monitor that? Yes. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, okay, I think we'll we'll start the discussion now. Thank you so much. I, I'd like clarification. I have a historical point. Uh, one was the doctrine of immortality under serious intellectual challenge during their current The question is, uh, was the doctrine of immortality under serious intellectual challenge in Descartes' day? Um, there were materialist philosophers like uh, Hobbes in England and uh, Gassendi um, on the continent um, whose views um, would certainly entail a serious a challenge, or a challenge anyway, to the doctrine of immortality. Um, but my impression is that uh, there was not a lot of overt debate about it because it was flying in the face of the church. Descartes is 
clearly extremely anxious throughout his life uh, not to get into any sort of trouble. Well, that's exactly yeah. the underlying question yeah. that I have is, 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 is his work on the immortality of the soul really to be considered serious from his point of view, or was he simply trying to avoid being attacked as his colleague down south, Galileo? I think, yes, his, uh, there are probably people in this room who know, know more than I do about Descartes, um, including the biography. But my impression is that um, he, his main object in the meditations was to do what he called leaving something firm and enduring in the sciences. The meditations is somehow meant to put science on a kind of irrefutable pedestal. He thought as a sort of, it was a sort of spin-off, very important spin-off from that project, um, that he had arguments which he thought that the theological professors would, uh, would, would, yes, would take comfort from. And one was an argument for the existence of God, and the other was the argument for at least the separability of soul from body, which is the basis for an immortality right. argument. But I don't think that that was his main intention. Yeah. Uh, uh, yes, one, two, three. Thank you. Okay. Um, both Plato and Descartes are familiar with the sciences and with mathematics, and they both know what a proof is, and they both know, I think, certainly Descartes, uh, what a test is. Uh, do they at all feel obliged to test in any way, or to, or to really prove in any way, what their ideas about the soul are, happiness? Did, did people hear the question at the back? Um, is your question a question about testing or proving their ideas about the soul or their ideas about happiness? I, I, the, the, at the end. Because the same question could have arisen last week. <laughs> I see. Let's say about the soul. Yeah. Well, um, in, mainly in his dialogue, the Phaedo, Plato does give a series of arguments which, although I think a critical eye will not regard them as absolutely knock-down arguments, um, are intended to prove the immortality of the soul. Um, and um, likewise, in um, the meditations, um, Descartes does give very careful arguments, although, again, his critics did find holes in these arguments, to the effect that the soul, or the mind, as he mainly called it, is a completely distinct kind of thing from any physical thing. And therefore, um, if it ever does cease to exist, it would not cease to exist because any phys physical thing has become disorganized or fallen apart. Um, I don't know whether by, proof, by proofs um, or, or testing you meant experimental tests. Um, I mean, the only way you can test experimentally whether the soul survives the death of the body is by dying and seeing what happens. But then you can't share your, your news. <laughs> uh, given, given Plato's position in the Phaedo that uh, the more abstract your form of thinking, uh, the purer the use of your soul or your, your, uh, your intellect, the closer you are to happiness, consequently, if you, uh, the fact that Socrates will eventually die will make Socrates a perfectly happy man. Given that, that principle, as I understand it, then, as Plato is, uh, is uh, 
involving the uh, Socrates and all the interlocutors in his discussion of political philosophy, would it then follow that a political philosophy which is the most abstract would render a society close to the highest degree of happiness as distinguished from a political philosophy which is dominated by practical intelligence, as it were, and is very, very concrete. In other words, putting it more specifically, would a concrete form of government reflect a lower form of social happiness than a very abstract form of government? Because to come to these conclusions involves different kinds of thinking, right? Well, does he go into that at all? He doesn't know. Um, I mean, if government happens in the real world, then it's always going to be concrete. Um, I mean, I take it the difference between concrete and non-concrete is not like the difference between a government which is telling one what to do every minute and a government which is much more laid back. You know, the sort of difference between being a Democrat and being a Republican, so-called. Um, I mean, it is very interesting, a very important fact about Plato that he thinks that um, the, the, one's soul is rendered better at uh, doing everything that a soul is supposed to do by thinking more abstractly uh, rather than involving itself in the here and now. Um, and that, of course, applies to the rulers in, in, the, in the Republic, the philosopher rulers. They prepare to be, they're prepared to be rulers by doing all that mathematics and logic and things like that. I understand. Mm -hmm. uh, the main reason why Descartes, when he was uh, like a conclusion class in his uh, meditation, um, that he kind of divorced himself away from the Catholic point of view. Because the Catholic point of view is very simple to understand. You know, life or the soul comes from a spiritual being, God, and it is given to you, and then the reason why that is immortal is because God is immortal. So that's very simple to understand. Now my question is, um, is that the reason why Descartes decided not to use the separability of the soul in contrast to Plato as saying that the soul is inseparable in order to control the body because you have to control the body so that you can save the soul? <laughs> Is Descartes trying to separate his ideas or his philosophy with that of the Catholic religion because he doesn't want to accept that there is a God? Oh, no, not at all. Um, I'm sure that different views have been held about this, but my impression of Descartes is that he was, um, he was a, a very devout believer, not just in God, but in Christianity. Um, but he... He's interested in this really very abstract question of whether the soul um, is a different thing from any physical thing. And he says in many, on ma in many places that he doesn't want to get involved in controversies that have any sort of practical implications. Um, he says at one point in a famous passage in the Discourse on Method, I'm going to put all practical things on one side, I put them on hold. And when I come back to them, they're going to be exactly the same as they were when I put them there. So he, put, he subjects everything to doubt except principles about, about how to live, uh, what's moral and immoral, and presumably principles of his religion. He thinks he, he's, he's just interested in sort of purely speculative matters.
So he was trying to be a scientist. He was trying to be a scientist. In the most empirical way that he could. He was trying to be a scientist in the most scientific way that he could, and he didn't see any need to get to get across the church and to be seen to be competing with them in their territory. How, how do you uh, react to the perception among many of the uh, best minds of our age that Plato and Descartes uh, had a distinctly deleterious effect on Western civilization, and that? Dualism itself may be a dead end and, and fallacious philosophy. Well, um, I think all these isms that we've so far managed to come up with have turned out to be dead ends. I mean, I think that the many different forms of materialism which have been desperately tried and refined more and more and are still being so in most philosophy departments um, in English-speaking countries at any rate today, um, are not getting there. They're not getting there. It's, I think it's, if the dream is to explain feelings and thoughts in terms of physical concepts, it's still a dream. Um, now, as far as deleterious is concerned, maybe it's enough for me just to say, well, even if they have done terrible damage to our psyches, these two dualist philosophers, they have also given us a great deal, not just in the case of Descartes in, math, in science and mathematics, but also in philosophy itself, which has been extremely valuable and philosophically stimulating. So, you know, I would say, um, I wouldn't mind sitting down at table with either of them. <laughs> Yes. 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 Uh, one sort of a puzzle I have over the fact that the early Christians, so many of them, found it so comfortable to use Plato in Greek philosophy in general. And the way you've brought to think about this because you uh, use the word salvation of the soul yes. um, by, by relating it to um, the soul learning or practicing to be more and more purely intellectual. Mm -hmm. Whereas through those early Christians were aware of um, the emphasis on um, meekness and children, <laughs> and then we shall inherit the, the next world. It, it seems almost as if um, they were aligning themselves with a view which was very much of longer heads with the big, yes. great emphasis of uh, Jesus on um, non-intellectual Absolutely. I mean, um, I imagine that you know those fathers of the church who were uh, sort of seriously drawn towards Platonism and using towards using Platonism um, to help forge a Christian philosophy um, must they must have felt a tension between what they were doing and the uh, extremely I don't want to say anti-intellectual but non-intellectual um, aspect of Christianity, which is a religion for everybody, educated and uneducated alike people who spend all their days pushing a plow, have no energy for figuring things out, abstract things. It's a religion for those people just as much. Um, so it's, it is one of the sort of paradoxes of, uh, of, of history. I agree with you. Continuing uh, on that issue, yeah. uh, I'm wondering if you can comment on the tension between the platonic vision of the, in a sense that the body is prison and the Genesis vision that the body and the world is wonderful. 
and that tension continuing in the dynamic within the, within the Christian church? Well, actually, uh, in Plato's native dialogue of Timaeus, he also thinks that the world is wonderful. Um, I think what he thinks is bad about being in the body is that, for example, most of, for him, being in a particular body sort of represents being uh, stuck in a very limited point of view, um, being, giving enormous importance to things which are extremely unimportant, um, sub specie eternitatis, um, you know, just being occupied with eating and drinking or getting your, your bread or having your children or whatever. Um, but it's not as if he's against the world as such. He thinks in the time is he thinks God created the world and he created it to be a wonder, as wonderful and good and beautiful as it could be. Uh, but he also thinks that when human beings are thinking about the universe um, and doing the mathematics and so forth that you need in order to understand the science of the universe, he thinks that um, we really are, as it were, away from our bodies. Um, we're, not, we're more than just parts of the universe. Yeah. So there's not such a split between, if you see the whole of Plato, there's not such a split between him and the um, biblical view about, about the world. Can I have one last question? Yes. Professor Brady, yes. do you think in a statement is the best proof that you can give us after all of your study in Plato and Descartes as the best proof as to the immortality of the soul? Well, I obviously don't know what to say in answer to your very challenging uh, question. Um, I am imaginatively sort of <coughs> drawn by, uh, you know, the many, many statements one finds in poetry and in philosophy about um, life being a dream, that sort of thing. On the other hand, I find that I'm equally imaginatively uh, drawn by the little poem uh, that uh, the Emperor Hadrian is supposed to have written, in which he imagines the soul going on without the body and being perfectly miserable without its body because it's a poor, naked, lonely, deserted little creature and it doesn't have anywhere to go and it has nothing to do and it hasn't got any friends. And um, I'm also, I have to say, at least as often as not, um, don't believe that there is any survival after death. Um, so I'm afraid that um, you could say either I'm open-minded um, or I've received into my mind too many conflicting ideas. Thank you. Um, thank you very much, Sarah, for a wonderful response to questions. And, um, I, wish, I wish we had you in You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.